Amen. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. You guys have picked some spectacular songs, by the way. Yeah, often, I don't, I, you guys are probably used to it because it seems like this is the culture of your church, but um, when I speak at, at different youth groups and uh, go to different churches, there's a lot of really bad songs out there. I don't know if you've experienced that. There's a lot of songs that actually, they make me uncomfortable, not necessarily because they're wrong, but because they're uncomfortable to sing. Like, sometimes I feel like some songs are singing, it's as if Jesus is my boyfriend, right? And I'm like singing to him about his warm embrace and his sweet and tender touch. And I'm like, you know, I'm a man. And I'm just like, this is kind of an awkward song to sing, you know, to Jesus. Like, but the songs that you guys have picked, uh, I mean, scripturally rich and, you know, uh, emotionally provide, like just bringing up all the right kind of feels and uh, in the right kinds of ways. So I appreciate that a lot. So, alrighty, uh, grab your Bibles, open them up to Genesis chapter one. So last night we talked about idolatry. Uh, again, the theme of uh, our week this week is uh, the gift of God. Again, reminding ourselves that when it comes to Christianity, the thing Christianity offers the world is not a new lifestyle. It's not a new bunch of religious practices. It's not even a new philosophy or new beliefs. The thing that Christianity offers the world is God himself, right? The, the joy of Christianity is not found in what God gives. It's found in God, the God who gives. That's, that's the point. And so last night, we looked at idols because idols are what both Satan puts in front of us and what our sinful hearts create inside of us when we're trying to seek the joy we can only find in God, in God's creation, right? Idols are essentially counterfeit gods that promise to give us what only God can, but never will, right? And so before we think about God being the gift, the ultimate supreme treasure that will satisfy us unto eternity, it was necessary that we first just acknowledge the idols that are in our lives, because you will never see God as the supreme treasure if your sight of him is clouded by counterfeit treasures. You will never see God as your supreme treasure if you're too busy looking at counterfeit treasures. So that was last night. Now this morning, what I wanna do, last night was the negative, counterfeit gods, the idols that steal our attention away from the true treasure. That was the negative aspect. This morning, I wanna bring us to go into the scriptures and look at the positive aspect of the gift of God, namely not in the emptiness of idols, but this morning I want us to just think together from the scriptures about the fullness that we have in Jesus Christ. But before we do, I would like to make a simple observation that I think you're going to agree with immediately, but we'll show some examples just to drive it home. This world is filled with yearning. Have you ever stopped to think about how humans are, a, are just creatures that could be characterized by yearning for something? Right, this makes us automatically different from the beginning than animals. Animals, they may yearn for things, but it's, it's very quick things, right? They'll yearn for a meal, they eat it, and then they're fine, right? They yearn for shelter, they get it, and then they're fine. They yearn for a feelings of protection, you know, or uh, progeny just to continue to, you know, basically if with animals, if you feed them, if you shelter them, and then if they can just reproduce, they're kind of good in the hood, right? They, you know, they don't have any deep existential yearnings where they sit down under the stars and they say, there's gotta be more than kibble, Right, they, you know, they, 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 they don't do that, but humans are these odd creatures that even when all of our creaturely comforts are met, there is 
still this deep, substantial yearning. You see, the scriptures say that's because we are a people that were created for something more than creation. Now, we could talk about this yearning. This is in my experience. I've experienced this uh, yearning. I have lived a life that has continually fallen to the trap of thinking that the grass is always greener on the other side. The grass is always greener at the next stage in life. And so maybe you can, you know, you can kind of jam with me on this. Like when I was in high school, I just was always thinking, man, as soon as I'm in college, right, then it'll be good. Finally, it'll be good. And then when I became a Christian, I just didn't want to go to college and get out of the house, but I wanted to go to uh, the, you know, Christian college. I wanted to go to Biola uh, University. I wanted to become a pastor. I wanted to teach and preach God's word because I found joy in Christ. And so I, found, I thought this idea, at first I couldn't go to Biola because of finances because it's like a trillion dollars a semester. And I'm like, I don't have a trillion dollars. I just have a billion dollars. And so like, I can't get into Biola and so I just had this yearning, like, oh, if only I could go to Biola. I got to go to Saddleback. That's our local JC, you know, the Gauchos, the Gauchos, which means Mexican Cowboys. That's their, their you know, I was going to be a Mexican Cowboy before I transformed into an Eagle, and I was just like, oh, bummed out. But then all of a sudden, by God's grace, I was able to go straight into Biola, and I got to Biola, and it was great, and it was awesome, fantastic school. I actually teach there now as an adjunct, but I got to Biola, and it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't as good, right? I enjoyed it but not as much as I thought I was. So then once I get into Biola, about sophomore year, junior year, you're a college student, what's the yearning for all college students? Man, once I graduate and get that job, then. And then I got that job, and then I'm like, man, once I get into, you know, just the same kind of job, just a different, like, context, then it will be, and I just constantly fell into this trap of thinking what's coming is going to be it. I remember a seminary professor, I was sitting down, his name is uh, Mick Borsma. Uh, he works at Talbot, the seminary that I went to down south. Um, and we were sitting down for lunch, and he's a great guy. And, and he just said, he says, people always think the grass is greener on the other side. And you know what? The grass is always greener on the other side because it's astroturf. It's fake. It's not real, right? And so it looks pristine, it looks awesome, but it doesn't have any life to it. Maybe you again, can, could resonate with me this morning. You feel like your life, you're just always running, never arriving. Right, we oftentimes will look at, you know, hamsters or rats in cages and they're riding the wheel. You know, and we're like, ha, you dumb little rat. You just, you're not getting anywhere. Oh man, now I'm convicted. <laughs> we're running, we're sweating, we're laboring. And once we finally get to the place we thought we were gonna have it, all we are is sweaty, and exhausted, and we haven't moved a step forward at all. But it's not only my experience, it's not only your experience. When we look out into the experience of all humanity, every human writing from as far as we can go back has this continuous theme of deep yearning without the satisfaction. Think of a couple of just quick examples of today. Um, think of the Rolling Stones, right? I mean, again, this is important to look at celebrities, look at people who are famous and wealthy because some of us may fall trapped thinking, well, the reason that we're not, you know, satisfied is because we haven't reached the top yet. Once we get to the top and we have the money or we have the fame or we then finally, you know, we're just kind of low on the totem pole, but once we reach that, but when you look at people at the top, what are they saying? I think of the Rolling Stones song. Any Rolling Stones fans in here? No, because we're at church. It's bad. Uh, no. <laughs> 
Uh, I think of, you know, Mick Jagger, he's still to this day, he's like eight, 90 years old, but he's still jamming. I can't get no da, 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 satisfaction. And then the, 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 the bridge or the chorus or the tag, whatever it is, and it, it kills me every time. And I try, and I try, and I try, and I try. And it's so funny when you're singing that singer, hey, I can't get no. You're like, it's a happy song, it's jamming. But if you actually, if anyone like stopped at the concert to think about that, oh, that's terrible. You too, me too. What's wrong with us? Or maybe a more contemporary music. Uh, uh, Josh actually reminded me of this song last night. Uh, John Mayer, John Mayer fans in here. Uh, he's got this song. I've got the lyrics set for you here, but man, this one just hits you right in the nose. Do you guys have the lyrics for this song? Okay. Something's missing. I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Something's different. I don't know what it is. No, I don't know what it is. And the next part of the song is really telling. He says, friends... In the song, he goes, check. Money, check. Well slept, check. Opposite sex, check. Guitar, check. Microphone, check. Messages waiting on me when I come home. People in my life, family, friends, check. I love this line. How come everything I need, I think, key, how come everything I think I need always comes with batteries? Now think about that line. That is a, I don't know how much, you know, of the Bible John Mayer reads, right? But that is a profound biblical, that could be straight out of the book of Ecclesiastes. How come everything I think I need comes with batteries? Think about the idea of batteries. Limited use. Limited use. They may get a little bit out of it, but soon it's gonna die. All the world's idols come with batteries. Or I think not just John Mayer, Think of, uh, let's think of football and athletics for just a quick second together. Uh, Tom Brady, right? I know you guys are, are you all Raiders fans? No, okay, good, okay, okay, <laughs> no, right? <laughs> like, get out, no. Uh, okay, that, that's helpful, so that means that you may, you know, appreciate other teams. Raiders fans are just, you know, they're scary. Uh, <laughs> but um, Tom Brady, one of the greatest quarterbacks football has ever seen, right? How many Super Bowls does he have now? Like five, five or six? Like he has so many, we're like, I don't know. Like I lost count somewhere back at like three or four. He's the comeback kid, right? His, his coming into it, he didn't come, you know, he didn't start off strong. And so he's kind of the American underdog. He won five Super Bowls. He's incredible on the field. He's good looking, which then you look at that and you're just like, come on, God, like really athletics. And, and he marries a supermodel, right? And all this stuff, he has got seemingly everything. He's the top of his field. His, everything he worked for his entire life, he got it and then some. And there was an interview they did, I think this was after Super Bowl number three on the show 60 Minutes. Had, they interviewed Tom Brady. There's a segment that I think it was about athletics or him. And I have actually the clip of this interview. Just watch what he says um, and relate it to what we're talking about right now. Do you guys have it? It's actually in the PowerPoint. Let's see here. David's working. David, do you have it? Or? It should be on slide number four on the PowerPoint. If you, if you turn the PowerPoint presentation on and then hit play. There it is. Make sure the volume's nice and low. There it is. Tom Brady, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, is not only one of the NFL's best players, he's one of the NFL's great stories. 
At the tender age of 30, he has already won three Super Bowls, an accomplishment that ranks him with some of the best quarterbacks ever to play the game. And he's having one of the greatest seasons in pro football history. When we first reported on him back in 2005, he seemed underrated and almost overlooked. He doesn't have the arm of Peyton Manning, and he doesn't have tattoos, and he doesn't take steroids, and he's never held out for more money. All he knows how to do is win. <laughs> it's what you always wanted. You're right. You're right. It has. And I didn't think it came with all the other baggage, though. In addition to his success on the field and his sex appeal off it, there is also the $60 million 10-year contract to play with the Patriots. I mean, I'm making more money now than I ever thought I could ever make playing football. But with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. There's got to be something more than this. We have to face it. Even when people have it all, they almost become more miserable because they realize that they still don't have the thing that their heart desires. Now, obviously, by looking at last night, we understand that idolatry right, never satisfies. The idols of this world, they will take, they will never give. They'll never satisfy like the creator of this world does. But this morning, what we're going to do is we are going to uh, find the answer to the question, what is it that mankind is looking for? What is the reason for our universal yearning? And it's more than just saying, oh, it's found in what God gives, right? It's deeper than that. So what we're gonna do this morning, we're gonna kind of have a, a whole Bible uh, uh, overview. We're gonna start in Genesis. We'll end in Revelation. I promise I won't read everything in between. Uh, and so what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at the three main movements of the Bible. We're gonna look at creation, we're going to look at salvation, and then we're going to look at consummation, right? When God wraps everything up in the end. And in these three biblical movements, we are going to continue to ask the question and find the answer, what is it that we yearn for? Okay? So as we do, let's go to Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to start in the, as we look at um, the reason we yearn. We're going to look at creation, and so we start in Genesis 1, and uh, by just way of simple uh, summarization, in Genesis chapter 1, we find the creation of the world in the seven days. In the first six days, uh, in the six days actually, God creates. On the seventh day, he rests. On the first six days, he creates everything in the world, the sky, the ground, the, the animals in the air, the animals in the land, the animals on the sea, the, 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 the trees, the food. And then finally, once all of the world is prepped and ready, I think of like uh, someone who is who's preparing for a guest, right? They get everything. Everything ready, everything's made, everything, the, this fridge is stocked, the bed is made and clean, right? They, they sprayed Febreze everywhere, they're ready for guests. God gets this, this creation ready and finally then he creates the ones who are to dwell within that creation, mankind. But there's one thing we all know when God creates in Genesis 1, God continues to say something after he creates everything. What does he say? He saw what he made and he saw that it was good. We have to remember, see last night we don't want to fall into the trap of being like, oh, idols are bad. And then just turn to this really weird form of Christianity where we start to reject the good gifts of God. We reject things like food, 
right? Or even maybe good food. And so we think, if I'm going to be a good Christian, I'm going to love Jesus the most. I can't really enjoy my food. So I'm going to eat gruel for the rest of my life, you know, for, for Jesus, you know? No, Christians are people who look at the creation and we, and we along with God go, man, this is good. We watch planet earth, right, on Netflix. And we go, man, this is good. We hear the British narrator in his accent. We go, man, that is good right? We eat our favorite meal in that for Christians. It shouldn't be idolatry. It shouldn't end in the meal. We shouldn't just be like, oh, burrito, I worship thee. Like you are so good. God's good gifts are created to then ratchet us up and look to the giver who's given them. And so God looks at creation. He says, it's good. And so idolatry is not enjoying God's creation. It's not idolatry. It's worshiping God's creation. If you enjoy God's creation, you're being a good Christian. If you worship God's creation, you're being an idolater. Christians have the best of both worlds. We enjoy all of God's gifts, but we worship the creator, okay? So good world. Um, and so then God creates man. Okay, this is gonna be in verse 26 of chapter one. On the sixth day, he creates man. And I just wanna point out a couple things that is unique about our creation. Number one, look at this in Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Let's make man in our image and after our likeness. The first thing to note about our creation is the one in whose image we are created. Mankind is created in the image of God. This is why Christians from the very beginning have always fought for universal human rights. We say that people are not valuable because of their skin color. People are not valuable because of their IQ. People are not valuable because of how much money they have or how functional their body is. People's value comes from this one truth. They bear the image of God. And that's why Christians have fought for the handicapped why we have fought for racial equality, for, for loving beyond the races, why we have fought for uh, women's rights, why we have fought to abolish slavery because we say, I am my brother's keeper and my brother is all of mankind because they all bear the image of God. When you think about the image of God, I want you to think about this. It means that we are more like God than anything else God has created. We are more like God than anything else God has created, which makes sense when you look at people and compare them to everything else. You're like, okay, there's something different there. But not only are we more like God, being made in the image of God means that we actually have the joy and responsibility of reflecting God, of representing God. Here's how our life is supposed to work. God rules over all of the universe and makes it flourish under his power. God puts Adam and Eve in charge of the whole world, that they would rule the whole world and make it what? Flourish under their power. We are made to be many statues of God. We are made to live and relate and, and act in such a way that when we look at the life of an image bearer, it is supposed to call our attention to who? The one whose image it bears. Right, so say, say Josh just kills it as a college pastor right, at, at your church, right? And, and he, decades of just faithful ministry, and it's so good that they make a statue of Josh right there in the middle of the courtyard, right? You come there, and he's just like this, you know? 
put a sword on him just because it's Ray. <laughs> you come and that statue is created to, yes, capture your attention. It's created to, yes, be an accurate reflection of Josh. But that statue is created so your thoughts immediately go to who? Josh. In the same way, we bear the image of God that we are like God. That's a privilege, but we represent God. That's a responsibility. Mankind is the image of the glory of God. We're made to live in such a way that when people see our lives, they're to think about the God whose image we reflect. So he makes us in his image to reflect him. But also, we look that that's how it happens, obviously, in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. It's glorious. It's beautiful. We're naked. We're married. We're eating fruit off of trees. We're friendly with all of the animals, right? It's just like the ideal scenario. But then Genesis 3 hops on the scene. And not only are man uh, is uh, created... Oh, sorry, I'm actually getting ahead of myself. There's one more thing. We're not only created to reflect God, we're also created to enjoy God. Okay, that's, that's key. We're not just created to reflect God. That would just be a job where we're created to not reflect him, but also to enjoy him. Look at Genesis chapter three, verse eight for me real quick. Um, this is before sin happens. It's actually, sin has actually happened, but I just want you to note that Adam and Eve, they are deceived by Satan to do the one thing God had told them not to do. And they, they eat the fruit of the tree and they sin against God. Sin enters the world. But, but as that happens, I just want you to look in, in verse eight of chapter three. It says this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You see, what I think this shows us is that God created Adam and Eve not just to reflect him as, their, as his image bears, but he created Adam and Eve to live with God in fellowship. God is amongst his people in the garden. Notice that they heard God walking in the garden in the cool of day. He was with them in such a way that they were aware of his presence and it doesn't seem like, whoa, God's here. That's never happened before. It almost seems that the narrative has, built, has made us, is, is supposed to almost assume that this was a natural occurrence for Adam and Eve. They lived in loving fellowship with their creator as they bore his image to his creation. God creates them to reflect him, but God creates Adam and Eve to enjoy him. He doesn't say, hey, Adam and Eve, here's this world. Enjoy, bye, I'll be back in like a millennia. He says, Adam and Eve, here's this world. Live here with me. To enjoy fellowship with him. Friends, God has not created you to ultimately be his employee to do his work. God has not created you to ultimately be his slave just to obey his every one command. God has not created you to just honor him as his subjects. God has created you ultimately to delight in him as enthusiasts. He's created you to adore him as those who are taken by the supreme treasure that he is. He hasn't created you ultimately for duty. He's created you for delight. We are to reflect him. We are to enjoy him. And through reflecting him and enjoying him, guess what we give him? Glory. We bring God glory when we act like him as image bearers and we enjoy him as worshipers. We bring him glory. Now, think about it like this. When we think about the word glory, it's one of those words that Christians use all the time, but we don't always define very well, you know? And, and we just kind of becomes part of our vernacular. Like, I just want to glorify God, you know? And if you do junior high ministry, they'll catch you on this. They'll be, you know, oh, let's just glorify God. And a junior high will come up. What does it mean to glorify God? And we're like, 
I think there's something happening over here, right? And we'll, we'll kind of evade the situation because we can't always define it. To glorify God, it does not mean this. It doesn't mean to make God beautiful. That would be to beautify, right? So say you get a new room in a house, your parents say, hey, this is your new room. It's all blank. And they say, you can paint it, you can decorate it, you can furnish it. You can what? Beautify your room. You can make it more beautiful. That is not what it means to glorify God because why? God is infinitely beautiful already. To glorify God is not to make him more beautiful, but it is simply to act in a way that puts his beauty on display. So do not think of glorifying God like you are a painter and by glorifying God, you're painting him and making him more beautiful. Think about it like this. You are like a frame and God is like the masterpiece. A frame of a picture is not supposed to call attention to itself. It's supposed to call attention to what? The picture. And if a frame is really bad, it distracts from the picture. Or if a frame is trying to be really, it's gold and there's jewels and all that stuff, what will it do? Distract from the picture. And so we are living how how God made us to live, not when we are living in sin and taking glory away from God. We're dimming people from looking at him. We're also not made to try and make ourselves glorious like God. We're made to live in a way to glorify him, that is to live in such a way that it calls people's attention to how good God is, that through our lives, their eyes will then be brought to God. We are created to reflect him. We're created to enjoy him. And by that, we will glorify him. But what has happened? Sin. In chapter three of Genesis, we see that though God created us good, we see that sin takes place. And we know that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree. So we come back to our situation in chapter three, verse eight. God's walking in the cool of the garden. Let's pick it up and see what sin has done in our relationship with God. Verse eight, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife, this crushes me every time I read it. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. A couple things that you should note there. Number one, how dumb is that? <laughs> right? You've got kind of an omnipresent, omniscient God. They're like, ah, hide. They get into some dark closet. God's like, I'm still here. Right? <laughs> so first of all, it's theologically not, you know, very smart. Right? Adam and Eve apparently just weren't thinking very well in that moment. But secondly, that is heart crushing. Because you know what probably happened when Adam and Eve first heard God walk? Like before sin happened, when they heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, you know what they probably did? They didn't, I'll give you a picture. One of my favorite times in the day is when I come home from work and I open the door because guess what happens? My, my toddlers, my little girls, Daisy and Penny, they lose their minds, right? It's so funny. I try not to, I don't, I don't want to like, it's, it's best when I can open the door and I just surprise them. I open the door and they, they just, and they look at the thing. And then Daisy goes, Daddy! And she just flies off her chair wherever she is and she just, you know, tackles me, hugs me. And, oh, I miss you so much today, Daddy. And she starts telling me about her day. Penny, who's not as, as verbose right now, you know, she's just two years old. She's not talking as much. She would just be there. She looks up, she goes, you know, she comes down and just her little drunk baby walk toward me, you know, and they just come and they want to play with me and they want to talk with me and they want to cuddle with me and they want to, you know, they're so happy. When I think Adam and Eve, when they heard God walk in the garden in the cool day before sin happened, I think they would respond to it just the way my girls respond to my homecoming. They'd think, oh, God's here. Let's go speak with him. Let's go, let's go talk with him. Let's go enjoy his presence, enjoy his glory. But now sin enters in and instead of running to God in delight, they run away from God. And they hide. And friends, that's not only what Adam and Eve do, but 
we're their children, and it's what we do as well. You sin, you fall into some kind of sin that you've been fighting against, or you just give up in a season of, of weakness, and you, and you sin, and then you go, you know, the last, last place I want to go tomorrow is church. You look at your Bible on your shelf and you almost actually move it out of the way because the, you don't want to even think about the presence of God because your sin makes you want to hide. It makes you want to delete your computer history. It makes you want to, to pretend like everything's okay because you don't want to be in the presence of God when you've sinned against him. They hide. But not only do they hide, look what happens next, verse nine. But the Lord God called to the man and said, this is a killer question, where are you? I don't think that was a question for God as much as it was for Adam and Eve. God knows where they are. But do Adam and Eve know where they are? Are they looking at their situation and seeing what's dramatically changed? Adam, Eve, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And here's our next thing. And I was afraid. You see, they hid from God and they began now to fear God. Now there's a good kind of fear Fear the Lord's the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 1, 7 says. But that's not the fear Adam has here. You see, the good kind of fear, the godly kind of fear, is a fear that, it's a fear that, that sees God as the center of the world. It, it, it's that God weighs most heavily in our heart and in our thinking, that he is the one who weighs most heavily in our lives. That is the proper godly fear, right? Where God is the greatest treasure in our life. Adam and Eve are not experiencing that kind of fear. They're experiencing the fear of God where God is terrifying to them. God has now become enemy to them. God has now become a, a, a force to, to be reckoned with. I, I think about it like this. Just as a criminal doesn't thrust him or herself into the arms of a police officer, so Adam and Eve now in their sin fear God. They stay away from him. And then... Verse 11, I was, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And look what Adam does. And, and the man said, the woman. <laughs> I love this. First of all, he's like, uh-uh, not this, that. The woman, she went rogue on me, God, right? She just, she's just like, oh, I'm just like eating, you know, and she shoved it in my, it's her. She tries to blame the woman, but not only that, look, the woman that you gave to be with me. She's the one that gave me the fruit. You see that blame shifting happening? It's everyone else's fault but his own. And so we hide from God, we're afraid of God because of sin, and we now blame others and we blame God for our sin. And then lastly, we can skip down to verse 23 to see the last little effect that sin has had after creation. Verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the tree of life. Sin makes us hide from God. Sin makes us afraid of God. Sin makes us blame God and others. And lastly, sin makes us separated from the blessed presence of God. The God we were created to enjoy, we now have no access to. That, my friends, is where human yearning and discontentment and inner chaos began. It didn't begin because we lost stuff. It began because we lost God. We were banished from the presence of God.
And that is now where all mankind outside of Jesus Christ stands, separated from the God they were made to enjoy. You see, think about it this way. We were created to drink the fresh water of God's friendship. It would nourish us. It would satisfy us. It would content us. But now, being separated from the fresh water of God's blessed presence, we try and quench our thirst by the salt water of the world. Could you imagine what an ocean must look like to a a, a thirsty man who doesn't know what the ocean actually is? Right, dying of thirst, fine. You know, you're like, I just need water. And they come over one of the mountains and they see the Pacific Ocean. And they're like, oh, thank God. This is all that I need. The happiness they would have in their heart because what they're seeing, it's water. That's what I need. It's water, it's water, it's water. And they drink. Yeah, it tastes sour and weird, but they're like, it's water. And they keep drinking, but instead of quenching their thirst, what happens? They get thirstier. Instead of saving them, it actually kills them. You see, being separated from the fresh water of fellowship with God, we are now in this world where we are trying to quench our thirst in the way that we are created to know, but we're drinking salt water and we're just getting thirstier. Hence Tom Brady, hence John Mayer, hence the Rolling Stones. We can't get no satisfaction. We try and we try and we try and we try. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. You've probably heard it before. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Or Charles Spurgeon. It's not gonna be a good camp weekend unless you quote Charles Spurgeon. This is a good one. There is nothing that fills the heart of man except the triune God. God has made man's heart a triangle. And man has been for centuries trying to make the globe fit in the triangle but they cannot do it I think again of my girls when I read this quote the little you get the square thing and there's all the holes of different shapes right and now one time I watched my daughter Penny bless her heart for like 10 10 minutes straight (laughs) circle square (laughs) and she's trying to get the circle in the square hole right? Circle in the square hole. And she just thinks, I just need to do it harder. I just need to try. I'm going to try and flip it over and try it this way. And I'm just looking at her. I'm going, you dear young girl, you're never going to get the circle to go in the square hole. You're never going to get. And then what I think now is us in our sin, we're always trying to get the globe into the triangle. We're saying, why isn't this working? Why isn't this working? We get frustrated and we get mad and we get mad at everyone else around us and we get anxious and we get tired and we get dissatisfied because we're trying to make the circle fit in the square hole. But we weren't made for this world. What does the dissatisfied college student, the empty-hearted ladder climber, John Mayer, Rolling Stones, Tom Brady have in common? They have been created to enjoy God, but they're trying to find it in God's stuff. That's what we have in common. The reason we yearn is because we were created to find that satisfaction in God. Okay, I've beat that, that horse dead. Second So that's creation, created to enjoy God, not to work for God, not just to sing to God, but to enjoy him. Second act of creation, thank God doesn't leave us in our sin, but now we come to salvation. We come to salvation. 
Uh, go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. There's a lot to say about salvation. I'm going to give you a simple overview from the time of Genesis and sin all the way to uh, the New Testament. We first think about the actor of salvation. Christianity has this unique teaching that salvation is not something man initiates, but it's something God initiates on our behalf. Right after Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3.15, God promises them that one day he will send a descendant of Eve who will crush the head of Satan and suffer in the process. Right, my New Testament class, we call this, 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 this promised one, we call him the snake crusher. God promises there will come one who will reverse the work that Satan has brought into creation. The entire Old Testament follows that promise. So God then comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, the snake crusher is gonna come through your line. You're gonna be the father of many nations and through your descendants, the world is gonna be blessed. And then God creates Israel and God actually dwells with Israel, right? He dwelled with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of day. God actually says, I'm gonna let you have a taste of that and he dwells with Israel. How, how is it that God dwells with his people Israel? Anybody? What does God make? The, t- the temple right now, before they actually get to the promised land, it- it's a tent, right? So it's God's mobile home, right? He creates a mobile home right in the center of the camp. He goes, that's my tent. It's right in the center of all the camp. I'm gonna be with you because I am a God who has created, who's created you to not just dwell under me, but to dwell with me. Yet the temple was always separate or the tabernacle was always separate from everybody. You couldn't just walk in because what is still here? Sin. So God is with his people, but the temple is a reminder, not only does God want to dwell with his people, but there's still something that separates us. But God's working on it. So he comes to people in the the tabernacle, then finally they get into the promised land and he builds the temple. He says, this is my house. You are my people. I'm dwelling with you. He teaches his people his law so they would know how to live as his family. He promises them continually that the Messiah is coming. He tells them more and more about what to expect about the Messiah. And finally, the Messiah comes. Matthew opens up his gospel. This is the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the snake crusher, the guy we've been waiting for. God is not just dwelling with us in the tabernacle. Now God dwells with us as our Emmanuel, Jesus in the flesh, God with us. Just as a simple point here, your Bible is not about you. It's about Jesus. Your Bible reading will be far more delightful and far more effective if you first look for what the Bible says about God and what he does before you start asking about what it means for you and what you ought to do, okay? Jesus is the main character of the Bible. So God's the actor of salvation. We come to the New Testament. Jesus lives perfectly in our place. He teaches, he calls people to trust in him. He dies on the cross for our sin, the sin that was started in the garden that we all have a part in. He pays that penalty on the cross, takes all of our sin on the cross and he pays that penalty. He endures the righteous wrath of God, the judgment of God, so that the the righteous justice of God would be satisfied in the substitutionary death of Jesus in our place. Jesus then rises from the dead to prove to us that his death meant something. Because all, if, if we're being honest, is it very impressive to die? No, like everybody does it, right? It's not impressive to die. What's impressive is to, before you die, say, hey, I'm gonna die in this way, and then I'm gonna rise again three days later. There's only one guy who's pulled that one off, and it's not David Blaine, right? And so he rises from the dead, and the good news is this. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, says, if you turn away from your sin and you trust in me as Savior, you trust for me to forgive your sins and you follow me, I will save you. 
I will bring you back home. I will forgive you, I will wash you, I will cleanse you. That is good news, amen? But there's one thing I want us to focus on, a question. is Here we see in 1 Peter, we'll see what I just said about the cross, summarized very quickly. 1 Peter 3, verse 18, look at this. For Christ also suffered once, not many times, not over a period of time, he suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous, right? There's a good summary of the cross. You wanna share the gospel with someone? That's a simple way to do it. Jesus suffered on the cross once. Why? For sins. What'd that look like? The righteous Jesus suffered for unrighteous people like you and I. That's the method of our salvation. I love it that our, sim- what's the symbol of Christianity? It's a cross. I love that it's not a ladder. If every other religion wanted to really pick a symbol, to, to talk about what that religion means, it would be a ladder because every religion says you need to climb yourself up to God. But Christianity symbol is not a ladder, it's a cross where God has hung on the cross for us. He's done the work. Spurgeon says every religion in the world, his message is this, do, 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 do. But the message of Christianity is done. It's done. He suffered once for sins. That's the method. But now here's the question. The crucial question you need to ask right now. What is the greatest gift the cross gives us. Now notice, I'm saying greatest gift because if you say what's the gift the cross gives us, we'll be here all weekend, right? Heaven is not long enough to examine the riches that we've gained through the cross. I mean, it's like a big fat pinata, right? Just bursting with good things inside. There are many gifts coming to us through the cross, but there is one gift that sits as king above them all. What is it? Some people would say, uh, the, would say maybe things like this. Um, the cross, the ultimate gift of the cross, it's forgiveness. There's even scriptural warrant. Check this out. Matthew 26, 28, Jesus at the Last Supper says, this is the blood of the new covenant, blood symbolizing his death, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Does the cross forgive, friends? Absolutely. But it's not the ultimate gift. Some else may say, well, you know, it not only forgives, it cleanses us. Revelation 7, 14 God's people have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. If you're ever talking to a junior higher about the gospel, about, about Jesus' death, just say a simple way, Jesus' blood is God's soap. Jesus' blood is what cleanses us. It makes our souls, our lives white as snow before him. Better than Tide Pods, right? It's God's soap. It cleanses. But that's not the ultimate gift. Others may say, well, the cross, it gives us, it gives us heaven. I mean, can't top heaven. It's like the final gig, right? It's like, it's like, it's, it's the final show. It's the end. Revelation 5, 9, by your blood, Jesus, you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made these people a kingdom and they shall reign on the earth. Yes, the cross has purchased us heaven and even more so, the cross has given us deliverance from hell. That's a pretty good gift, amen? Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by Jesus from the wrath of God? So the cross gives us forgiveness and cleansing and heaven and deliverance from hell. It gives us washing, it gives us a new heart, it gives us joy and satisfaction and contentment and the list can go on. But none of those are the king gift. None of those are the supreme treasure. There still remains one ultimate treasure that every other gift leads us to or comes from. And that treasure is found in the second half of Peter 3.18. 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And I would love for you to underline this, box this, highlight this, star this, smiley face this. That, reason clause, that he might bring us to God. The cross is the way back home. The cross is the way back to the one that we've been created to image, to represent, and enjoy. The cross is a road back to God. The greatest gift that God gives us through the cross, my friends, is himself. That's it. Because think about it, we said it yesterday, what greater gift can God give you? Everything that he could give you that's not himself is finite, it's limited. But in the cross, God gives you an infinitely glorious gift, a gift that doesn't come with batteries. He gives you himself. And this is amazing because when you look at the Bible and you see people who have been reconciled to the creator, they've been reconciled back to the relationship they were created to know. You see something dramatic change in their life. You see all of their idols disappear and you see that the yearning they always experienced now begins to get fulfilled. I mean, look at some of these passages in the Bible. We actually sang this in the song before we started. Psalm 16, 11. God, you make known to me the path of life. Notice this. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Not in your presence there's halfness of joy. In, the, in your presence there's a lot of joy. No, it's that full joy is found in the presence of God, not from the presence that God gives us. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I don't know if you have someone in your life who's, who's you know, very, maybe very wealthy and they could literally buy anything that their heart's ever wanted and then Christmas rolls by and you ask the question, what the heck am I gonna get this person that they can't just buy on Amazon, right? Or anywhere else in their life. Like, what can I give them? It's a difficult thing. What do you give to someone that has everything? King David in the Bible, he's probably one of those guys. His family, when Christmas rolled around, um, his family probably had a hard time knowing what do we get, you know, our, our, our dad for, he's got everything. He's the king, he owns, he owns everything. Well, in Psalm 27, David actually says this one thing right here. He says this, One thing I have asked of the Lord and that I will seek after. David says, I have everything, but there is one. If God gave me, if he he kind of turned into genie mode and he says, hey, I'm gonna give you one wish and I'll do it, whatever you say. Here's what David says. One thing I ask, one thing I seek. This is it. That I may live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. All I want is him. Or Psalm 84 For a day in your courts, God, in your presence is better than a thousand elsewhere. I think, think about your happy place for just a moment, like your happy place, okay? The place that you love to get, you're there, everything's right. I think of the place that when I went on my honeymoon, Kauai, at the Marriott Resort in Lahui, Kauai, right? On the, on the, the chair that is not too far down on the beach, it's by the pool next to the second jacuzzi, Right? And there's the bar and grill right there. And I'm, that's my happy place, friends. Like that's the jam for me, right? That's, a, that's the, on this worth, that is just a place that I love. And if I were David, it'd be like this. God, one day in your presence is better than a thousand days at Kauai, at that resort. 
a year-long pass, a lifetime pass to any Marriott in the world, those who know the glory of God, friendship with God, would gladly see that one day in the true presence of their king is better than a thousand days anywhere else of your choosing. And what I love about this is this is not poetic hyperbole. This is just good theology. I love it. Or Jesus says it perfectly. John 17, three, notice this. This is eternal life. I love it when Jesus gets to these kinds of words. He's like, hey, just so you know, this is what eternal life is. It's like, okay, good, let me get my notebook out. Like, that's a good question. This is it. And we may think, he goes, the forgiveness of sins, right? Joy in your heart. You know, all that, this is eternal life. That they know you, God, the only true God, and they know Jesus Christ whom you've sent. The Bible defines eternal life as a restored relationship with the creator. That's it. You see, these many gifts, like I said before, the many gifts the cross gives us, think of forgiveness, think of cleansing, think of propitiation and justification and redemption, all these great, robust words, right? Those are all gifts the cross gives us that are meant to lead us to the ultimate gift. Why does God forgive you? Not just so you can go, yay, forgiveness, and then leave. God forgives you so you can get God back. When I have a fight with my wife, if I get in an argument, I say something stupid, I treat her wrong, there's now a rift in our relationship. And what I need to do is I need to ask for forgiveness. I need to gain forgiveness. But what would you think of me if I came into the kitchen? I go, oh, honey, you know, I sinned, back, I sinned back there. I'm so sorry that I said that. I really apologize for it. Can you forgive me? And she goes, oh, thanks, honey. I really appreciate that. That means a lot to me. Of course I forgive you. We hug it out. And I'm just like, all right, awesome. High five. See you later. Right? And then I just walk away from the situation. You would think there's something wrong because what am I ultimately seeking in that? Just forgiveness. But forgiveness is designed not just to be an end in itself. Forgiveness gets me my wife back in that situation. Forgiveness is a means to restored relationship. And so, yes, the cross forgives us, but that forgiveness is meant to lead us into perfect communion with God. So the gifts of the cross, forgiveness, they either lead to the cross, they're roads to fellowship with God or their results from fellowship with God. We think the cross brings joy and peace and satisfaction and contentment. Those aren't the ultimate treasures. Those are results from enjoying the ultimate treasure, which is restored fellowship with your God. So think about this. The cross can be made into three different categories. The gifts of the cross are either roads to the ultimate treasure or results from the ultimate treasure, but the ultimate treasure of the cross is God himself. It's God himself. I want you at this point, now that this point is in our heads, I want you to ask two questions of yourself right now. Not of your friend, not of your pastors, of you right now. Question number one. What is it that you actually are seeking? Now I'm actually talking to people who, who, who are confessing to be Christians, right? You, you, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, I repented of sin, I trust in him. In your relationship with Jesus Christ right now, this weekend, what is it that you're actually seeking? Because it's easy to fall into a trap of being a part of Christianity or following Christ, but actually using Jesus to get something from him instead of him himself. There's a perfect illustration in John chapter 6. Jesus feeds the, the 5,000, you know, which is probably actually 10,000, 14,000. He feeds them with the loaves and the fish. Everyone's pumped because they just got a free lunch, right? And they've all been following him because in a day where there's no grocery stores, there's no Chick-fil-A, right? There's no delivery. Having someone feed you is an incredibly big deal, 
right, where people are dying from starvation. So they're like, this guy is a continuous meal ticket. So they're just following him around everywhere, thousands of people. He gets up, he begins to preach, and he begins to help the people understand, I am not just your meal ticket. I've come to be your God in so many words. He says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water. If you want real life, I'm the one that you want. Don't seek me for what I give you. Seek me for myself. And do you know what happens when people actually hear that message? Thousands of people walk away from Christ. I've preached a lot of bad sermons in my life. I've had one or two people walk out in sermons. I've never had thousands of people leave right after I preach one sermon. Could you imagine how gut-wrenching that would be, watching thousands of people being like, I'm over this, I'm gonna go find something else. And they walk away until finally the only people that seem to be left standing with Jesus are his disciples. And we read this story in John 6. You don't have to go there, it's just real quick. After this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus because they didn't want Jesus, they wanted the bread. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Could you imagine, I mean, Jesus is looking, he looks at his disciples and they're kind of like, that was kind of rough. <laughs> we just, I mean, I thought, Jesus, you had so many Twitter followers, they're all leaving, right? Like, and he goes, do you want to leave me as well? And Peter, Peter has a few shining moments in the gospel. He has a lot of bad moments, but he has a few shiny moments. This is one of his shiny moments. And Simon Peter answered Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? Who else do we have? You alone have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, those people left Jesus because they weren't seeking Jesus for Jesus. They were seeking Jesus for something that he could give them. The disciples were seeking Jesus for Jesus. The disciples go, are we gonna leave? No, you're still here and you're the reason that we're here. You see, Christianity is not about being gold diggers for God, right? A gold digger is someone who marries someone to get riches or to get stuff out of that person. That's not what true Christianity is. We come to know Jesus Christ, not for what he gives us, but because he himself is what we want. Or think Amazon Prime, right? Blessed Amazon Prime, two-day free shipping. You have your package coming. You can't wait to see the FedEx man roll up into your driveway. You see him, but when you see the FedEx man, none of us are like, yes, FedEx man, you're here. And we put the package aside and we go, come in, come in. I've been waiting for you and we sit down and we talk with the FedEx because we don't care about the FedEx man. He's simply a messenger to give us what we really want, right? There's a lot of Christians that treat Jesus like they're FedEx man. They'll sing to him. They'll be excited when he comes, but ultimately they're not seeking him himself. They're seeking the package that he has in his hand. My friends, is Jesus the treasure that you seek or is he simply the FedEx man that delivers you the treasure that you seek? What are you seeking. Number two, and this is important. Some of you may be, you know, I see Christ. No, it's, it's about Jesus. I want to I follow Jesus. Are you enjoying him? You may say, I worship Christ. I sing to Christ. I pray to Christ. I obey Christ. I follow Christ. I, I talk about Christ with other people. Do you enjoy him? Like honestly, sincerely, like right now where you sit, like do you actually enjoy him? delighted in him, adoring him. Can you use a verb like adoration or cherish or delight when you're speaking about Jesus? You see, one of the things that kills me that I've seen throughout my years as a Christian is there are a lot of Christians that stand close enough to Jesus 
so all of their sin is exposed. But they're not close enough to actually feel the warmth of his friendship. It's like people at a bonfire, like right? you're standing close enough to the bonfire where you're exposed, right? Your sin and guilt, and you know, if you did something wrong, they would see it. But you're not close enough to actually enjoy the heat. Or there are people that, that aren't standing inside the house enjoying the heat of the fireplace and the fellowship and the warmth in the house. They're not standing completely outside where they're just like, oh man, everything's cold. This is kind of crazy. They're standing right at the threshold. And they're not warm and they're not cold. And, and they're, are you close enough to Jesus to feel guilt and shame? about your sin, but not close enough to actually feel the joy of his fellowship. Let me tell you, friends, there is no more miserable place to be. At least people who are far away from Jesus, they just sin it up, and they're just like, whatever sin, that's just the way. They're partying and they're hanging out. They don't even feel the conviction or guilt because they're not anywhere near the light. They're living in the darkness. They're like, this is the best we got so far. And the people who are in the church enjoying fellowship with Jesus, yes, they see their sin, they're convicted, but that just turns to greater joy because they find deeper grace found in Jesus. Do not be that person who's close enough to Jesus to feel guilt and shame, but not close enough to actually feel delight. It's a miserable place to be. Now, some of you may be like, well, I'm, no, I'm actually, I'm in the church. I'm not hiding. I'm not halfway in, halfway out. But I still am not a place where I'm delighting in Jesus. It could possibly be, could it possibly be that your belly is so full of the world that you have little room or appetite left for Christ himself. It's like my girls, they always want to eat crackers. For some reason, my girls just love crackers. They'll eat crackers all day long. We tell my girls, don't eat crackers because if you eat crackers, even though the crackers are good, they're gluten-free, GMO, my wife's all you know, healthy and homeopathic, and so these are crackers that will not kill you, right? Or give you a third arm or something like that. They're good, healthy, you know, nutritious crackers, but at the end of the day, they're crackers and what's coming? Dinner is coming. And so they're not eating bad things, it's, but they're just, they're so filled with the things of crackers, they've got no appetite left for dinner. And so for some of us, we binge on Netflix, right? And we're in the world and we're just doing worldly pleasures and worldly pursuits, even if they're not necessarily sinful ones, but we, our eyes are just so much on the world that we have little time left to cast our eyes upon Jesus. We'll watch 10 hours of Netflix, but opening the Bible for five minutes becomes a chore for us not because Jesus isn't glorious, but because our belly is so filled with the junk food of the world that we honestly have little appetite to actually savor and enjoy the things of Christ. Now, friends, this is not an invitation just for us to feel guilty and go, man, I really am a bad person. No, this is an invitation to grace. This is an invitation to put away the crackers of this world and savor the meal that is Jesus Christ. This is an invitation to walk toward the fire, not just to be in its light, but to experience its warmth. Guys, Jesus is better. And he's inviting you this morning through his word to remember that the cross was made, not just to forgive you, not just to cleanse you, but to bring you back to him so you can feel the warmth and love as his fellowship. As we, as we read last night, Jesus in Matthew 11 says, come to me, all you who are weary, and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. The last thing, and this one will go pretty quickly, is the consummation. Creation, salvation, consummation. So the consummation is when Jesus wraps everything up. Uh, he, heaven becomes on earth. And so we think about heaven dwelling with Jesus. What's the point of heaven? What's the treasure of heaven? D.A. Carson talks about heaven really well in this paragraph. He says, heaven's an exciting place 
on a redeemed world with redeemed people in redeemed relationships without sin and death where there is music and art and science and sports and literature and culture. They lived happily ever after is not merely a fairy tale. It is the blood-bought promise of God for all who trust in the gospel. Heaven is a glorious place, my friends. What is the greatest treasure of heaven? Jesus. Look, go to Revelation chapter 21 real quick as we, as we finish up our thoughts together. Revelation chapter 21. What is the treasure of heaven? This is 21 verse 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, but the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Just so you know as a freebie, the sea in Hebrew literature is a symbol of chaos and tumult and problems. And so in the new heavens and new earth, I'm sure there's going to be a sea right, like water and, you know, Pacific Ocean, things like that. This is, when it says the sea is no more, it says everything that makes this world chaotic and tumultuous will all be gone, just so you know. So the sea was no more. Now, verse two, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, notice this, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Here's what happens when we talk about heaven. We talk about no tears. We talk about no pain, no sorrow. We talk about streets of gold and big mansions, and everyone has their own golf course, and all of these physical, you know, blessings that heaven will bring, but we need to understand why is there no tears? Because he wipes them away. Why is heaven glorious? Not because there's no tears, not because there's no sin, not because there's no death or mourning. Heaven is glorious because there is Jesus. That's the treasure of heaven. He is the treasure of heaven. Notice that in Genesis, God created his people to walk with them in the cool of the day. Sin cast them out of his presence. And what is the hope that we all look forward to? That we will live in a city where God will dwell with us again in a way even more glorious than Adam and Eve had had known before. The presence of God is the, is the, the treasure of heaven. Heaven is not a great because it's a great place. It's great because we will be with the great person. Heaven is heaven because God will be fully with us. They will see his face. That's the joy of heaven. Here's the crucial question to ask as we think about heaven together. This comes from John Piper, and I hope it cuts to your heart like it does my own. He asked this question. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all of the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Jesus were not there? And for those who know how good Jesus is, that description is not heaven, it's hell. Because for the Christian, the true supreme treasure that everything else is but a faint glimpse of, it's God himself. Guys, Jesus is the supreme treasure. Not only, we weren't just created to enjoy him, 
We were saved to enjoy him and we look forward to the day where we will enjoy him without any hindrance of sin. If you're a non-believer here, and I know just because you go to a church camp doesn't make you a believer any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger, right? And so if you're not a believer, I'm so pumped you're here, super pumped. But here's where I want God's word to challenge you. You have been made to enjoy your God, period. You've been made to enjoy God. You've been created, saved, and, and offered, or you've been created and you are offered salvation and glorification that you may enjoy God above everything else. And until you finally throw away the empty idols that come with batteries, you will never be satisfied in this world and you will never see the next world. And it doesn't have to do with you're not obeying God's rules or doing God's religious practices. It just has to do with this. God's not gonna force you into his heaven if you wanna keep your back turned to him. God is calling you to turn away from the empty idols of creation as good as they are. And he's calling you to repent of your sin, your rebellion, to find salvation through trusting in Jesus Christ so you can be brought back to him. My friends, if you're a non-Christian, in God's word today, he's calling you home right now. What are you waiting for? Repent and trust in him. Get off the hamster wheel of stupidity and drink the fresh water of fellowship with God. For believers in here, let me just give you a a simple picture. A lot of you, you're believers in here and you want to grow in your relationship with Christ. You want to mature. You want want to grow up in your faith. The greatest way for you to grow in your faith is to simply fight to enjoy Christ each and every day the more happy your heart is in Jesus Christ, the more you will become like Jesus Christ. You see, sometimes we think of growing in Christ like, I got these sins and I don't want to do these sins and I've got these good practices and I want to do these good practices and so we kind of just white knuckle out our growth in Christ and we go, here's the things I need to do, I got to get it done. And that may work and that may help, but this is the greatest way to grow in Christ is simply to get your heart happy in Jesus Christ every single day. When I became a new Christian, I came non-Christian family. Jesus wasn't talked about, prayed to, sung to. When scriptures were ever talked about, it was just really kind of weird and awkward. Zero Christianity within my house. I become a Christian. I was addicted to pornography. I was addicted to partying. I was addicted to you know, the praise of other people because those were my idols. I had known them my entire life. I come to find Jesus is better than all these things I've, ch- I've chased. And here's what happened in my life. I stopped going to the parties, not because I looked at a list going, okay, here's the things I can't do. Oh, partying, bummer. I guess I can't party. I stopped going to the parties because I was too enamored by Jesus. And I didn't want to go to a place that was going to turn me away from him. I started going to church, not because I was like, oh, I gotta go to church. I guess I'm a Christian. I gotta check off that list. I started going to church because I wanted to be around people who looked like Jesus, who were looking at Jesus, who were gonna help me follow Jesus. Here's the thing. In my life, what made me grow as a Christian, what made me throw off sin and chase after the things of righteousness was not because I had the lists of do's and don'ts. It's because I had a treasure that I loved more than anything else. And it transformed my life. And so if you want to grow in Jesus Christ. Don't just think, here's all the things I need to stop doing. What you need to do is get your eyes on Jesus and be amazed about how glorious he is and you will lose the taste for the things of the world. You won't want him anymore because you'll have tasted something better. No one could drag me back to the life that I had before because I was so much more satisfied in what I had in Christ. 
It's the expulsive power of a new affection. The way to grow in Christ is to get a new affection, not just to try and get rid of your old affections. Because if you get the new affection, it will tear up all the other old affections. If you want to grow in Christ, my friend, savor your treasure. Second, though, if you want to share the gospel with other people, if you want other people to come to know Jesus through your life, savor your treasure. There is nothing more powerfully evangelistic than a Christian who is enamored with Jesus. My wife, uh, band, you guys can come up. I'm just going to share this last story. My wife uh, is a lover of dark chocolate, um, like a big time you know, lover. And I remember one time she was in the kitchen, went to Trader Joe's and got some of Trader Joe's chocolate. And she went in there and rifled in three. And I'm like, I'm on the couch reading a book and it's kind of quiet. Girls are sleeping. I'm looking up and what's she doing? You know, she goes in there and she just kind of, she takes out her dark chocolate and she just sits at the counter. She opens it slowly. And it's like a religious experience for her, right? And so she's just, and I'm like, dark chocolate. Whatever. And I just watch and she's Hmm. And she starts doing this like bounce thing. And I'm looking at this woman going, you are out of your mind, woman. Like what is going on? And I'm looking, and she is just savoring the chocolate. She's just enjoying it. She's, mm, mm, and just like, it's like, it's, it's weird. It's like a seat. And I'm looking, and I'm just looking at her enjoy the chocolate. You know what I wanted? The chocolate that she was enjoying. Because simply seeing her enjoy that chocolate made me want it. If your non-believing friends and family see you savor Christ, they see you enjoy Christ, they see in your life that Christ is the supreme treasure, they're at least gonna begin to ask questions. And that will give you a platform to not just say, hey, Jesus is the supreme treasure. It'll give you a life that will validate that as true in your life. There's an old hymn that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Father, thank you so much for this time and your word.